0: This message, by Terry Virgo, was recorded at the New Frontiers together on a mission conference 2008 in Brighton. I don't know for many of us, uh, just a shot here and a shot there, it's just another face, another context. But for myself and for others here on the team, uh, we know the settings, we know the hard work, we know the setbacks, the disappointments, the heartaches, the breakthroughs, and uh, it's just a tremendous joy to see uh, our friends there and see all that's being done across the nations, we're so grateful to you for the way you've stood with our overseas advances, helped us financially, many of you have gone and it's great that many of you have made the long journey to get back to be with us uh, for these days together that are so special. I believe God spoke to me quite pointedly really, I've been praying for some months about these days together, what should I speak about? Some of you who come regularly to this event will know that I will often speak on a Bible character. Last year, we looked at Joshua together for a couple of nights, the uh, year before Moses. I've been praying about it, wondering about it, and uh, just a few weeks ago now, praying uh, with Wendy, as it happens, uh, about other things, and yet this often in my mind, and suddenly came strongly to mind, almost as though it had been said to me. Stephen and Philip, and it was so out of the blue and so unexpected that I actually said to Wendy, did you just say Stephen and Philip, and uh, she said no I didn't, I said well it's almost like I just heard it, Stephen and Philip, and I thought I knew immediately what that was about, I thought it's about uh, my two evenings and I feel God has led me to look at these two New Testament characters, Stephen and Philip that we first meet with in Acts Chapter 6, you might like to turn to Acts chapter 6. They're, of course, overshadowed as we look at the whole of the book of Acts by the great heroes of Peter and Paul. But in those early days, when the church is just breaking out, suddenly bursting out this new phenomenon of a glorious church of thousands of believers, we come upon these two young men and I just felt God say, now look at them, study them, spend time looking at them. And uh, on the two sessions I'm taking with you, I want to focus on these guys. I believe God wants us to consider them. I'm absolutely persuaded. God wants us to consider them. And that being the case, I'm sure there are things about these remarkable young men who were not apostles. They were not kind of front-line troops. They weren't like Paul and Peter. They weren't uh, the ones who would take the main uh, calling that would go on through the long book of Acts, but were so significant and so used by God and in so many ways exemplary for us. And so we're going to read, obviously we can't read the whole of Stephen's long sermon, the longest sermon in the Bible, I don't want to get caught into that, though I've spent a lot of time looking at it in these last few weeks, but we will pick up at Acts chapter 6 and uh, read through that uh, short chapter and then a little here and there into Acts chapter 7. Okay, so Acts chapter 6, I'm reading from the NASB. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us "...to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word." The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and five others. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Silesia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, "We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God." And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Then he gives his long History, what's sometimes called his apology, though it's not very apologetic. Okay, we're picking it up at verse 46. 46. We'll refer to some of the contents of the other verses later on, but verse 46, just to read to the end. David found favor in God's sight, asked him that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, The Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. Earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which built all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet didn't keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. and They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this vibrant account of the birth of the young church. And Holy Spirit, we do invite your help right now. We thank you, Father, for your promise that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we together ask right now, Father, for the help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we may be truly edified exhorted, encouraged, our lives might be changed by exposure to truth in the power of the Spirit. Please, Father, come and do us good for your great glory. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the breakout of the young church. It's quite an amazing account of thousands of people repenting and turning to God. It's an unprecedented event. You'll find in Old Testament stories, there were times when there were national events of repentance. You'll find under Moses, there are times when the whole nation stands and expresses a degree of, of repentance, of uh, promising to put God first. You'll find similar times uh, under Samuel, under Ezra, even under John the Baptist. There's a massive turning of the nation in terms of repentance. So, yes, there have been times like that before, but never a time when the people, having heard the preaching as they did when Peter preached, uh, first on one occasion, then on another, that some thousand, something like 5,000 people repenting, being baptised, and then being flooded with the Holy Spirit. That never happened when Ezra led the people to repent. That never happened under Moses. For the Spirit of God, not to come as it did in Old Testament times, say from Moses to the 70 kind of elite leaders, or even in the time of King Saul, when the prophets knew the Spirit upon certain numbers of them, and Saul was touched by that. Now, have, now we have a kind of meeting of those two sort of things, national or large-scale repentance of thousands, thousands repenting, and suddenly the Spirit falling upon thousands of people. Like the Spirit from Moses to the 70, when they all started prophesying, and even the two that didn't come out, yes, they're prophesying in the camp, that outpouring of the Spirit, which you couldn't withstand. God was doing something, but that was a small thing compared with these thousands suddenly invaded by the presence of God. There's no other event like it actually in world history, when God came in such power at the birth of the church. God himself flooding the place. It says there were thousands among them. Acts 4 verse 4, the number of the men came to about 5,000. It's interesting to notice that D.A. Carson commenting on that similar number in John's Gospel, where it says there were... Uh, 5,000 men, he says actually that's usually the Jewish count of men he reckons with women and children. His comment on the John 6 account is that that would have been about 20,000 people. That's how he views the figure 5,000. Yeah, 20,000 probably in all. And so we're talking about a phenomenal outpouring. We find very extravagant statements in some of these verses. Multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Acts five sixteen, multitudes from cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing their sick and demonized, and all were being healed. It's quite hard to imagine this kind of event. Vast numbers of thousands of people, huge crowds, flooded with the presence of God, many being healed. Daily people being added and God coming in unprecedented power and filling them. That was how this story starts. Not only that, Jesus not only has conquered death and is out from a sealed grave. We find that the Sanhedrin take the disciples and put them into prison. And they seal the prison. They put soldiers on guard. They're in prison. But during the night, an angel comes, opens the gates, and although the gates are locked in the morning, they go to look, and there's nobody there. It's like another resurrection. You can't hold these people down. You put Jesus in a a tomb, hey, he's gone. You put the disciples in a prison, hey, they've gone. They're not only gone, they're at the temple preaching. You think, what is going on in the planet? This is impossible to hold down people. And they're growing, growing, thousands, thousands of them. That's the setting for Stephen and Philip. It's that era that they come on the scene. And in such a time, there's growth and numbers being added, and you begin to get the first kind of crisis of growth. And it's interesting, it comes in a kind of a social way, and we know from the Old Testament that for God, social ethics was the big thing. How are you caring for the poor? How are you caring for the widow? What are you doing for the orphan? It didn't matter how much they tramped the courts of God with their sacrifices, if they weren't looking after their poor and needy, God says, shut the door, I'm not interested in that. It's social ethics that pleases God. How are you expressing your love in terms that help the poor and needy? And here, we find the first potential danger The Greek widows and the Jewish widows are having some contention about the needs and the help of the poor. There's a challenge to justice. It's interesting, in Isaiah 42, the first servant song, when you get that uh, series of wonderful songs that Isaiah had about the servant of the Lord, which of course Jesus himself personified, but not only in Jesus, but in the people, the people now, we, the church, become the servant of the Lord. They were the corporate servant. God's people are gushing out. Out of the chrysalis of Old Testament people is coming this vibrant New Testament people, the servant of God, coming out from that chrysalis. Here they come on the planet, and they've got their first encounter with potential injustice. And God says, My servant, my spirit is upon him. He will bring forth justice. In fact, it says that three times in the first servant song. It's going to be the preoccupation of the servant of the Lord, of the people of God, that they care about justice issues. And here's the first one. It's in their own ranks. And so, yes, they've got to deal with that. They're highly motivated to do so. The apostles say, yes, we must have this dealt with. They know their own priorities. We must give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, modeling their own lives very much on that great apostle Jesus who gave himself to prayer day after day after day and the preaching of the word. They said, we must keep that as our priority personally, but we must get this task dealt with appropriately. We need men full of the Holy Spirit. They don't say we just need some sharp guys who can add up things. They say we want men full of of the Holy Spirit. That's their expectation. They see God has provided grace, and they're looking for God to show them who are the key players in order to do that. That's the setting, that's where we first meet Stephen and Philip. They are among this group of guys who are going to fulfill this calling. So first of all, I want to speak about Stephen's qualifications. We're looking now at this man, we'll look at Philip later in the week. Stephen's qualifications. The people then are looking for guys full of the Spirit. It's a very Jewish concept that we're not just bright, but we're full of God's enabling grace. You find in the Old Testament, when they're going to build the tabernacle, God says in Exodus 31.3, regarding those who are going to do embroidery on the curtaining, he says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship. The guy can do it because I've filled him with the Spirit, given him an ability to do it. And so in this young church, they're looking for people who are evidently chosen by God and equipped by God so that they can stay. A people genuinely moving by the grace and enabling of God. And so they find Stephen we find the qualifications there to look for are that they should be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And Stephen qualifies. He's a man seen to be not only full of the Spirit and wisdom, but you see him uh, referred to in three different couplets. You'll see in verse 3, his Spirit and wisdom. Verse 5, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. So there's these three phrases that describe this looks like overqualified guy. God is so on him, so phenomenally with him that he's not only going to do the task that's appointed to him, some have said these are the first deacons, the Bible doesn't actually use that word, but they're guys helping in this particular realm, but he seems to be a man who is so flooded with God that what they've asked him to do, well, it overflows into more. And we find that Stephen and Philip, though neither of them is an apostle as such, overflow with God's power so that signs and wonders are associated with both of them. That's one of the marks. And I can only assume in God saying into my heart, I'm quite sure he did, Stephen and Philip, this is one of the ingredients we need to look at, we need to understand it, to see it where it was in their lives with the implications of the challenge for us. Stephen, if you like, was in the great tradition of many Bible leaders that they did signs. Abraham, not notoriously a man of signs and wonders, but when Abimelech sinned and took uh, his wife, and uh, when Abraham lied against Sarah, and at well, least pretended she was just his sister, and he says, Abraham, we'll, he'll pray for you. This kind of stupid guy who's just lied about his wife. Yet he's mine, he's my prophet, he will pray for you. And immediately prays, there's healing there. God's with him in a visible, significant way. Moses is called, he's equipped, he's given signs to do. And not only given signs to do, God sends him and says to him, make sure you do the signs. It's not like, oh, please, may I have some signs, please? No, hey, I've given you these, now make sure you do them, make sure you use them It's part of my commissioning, It's part of my enabling. Make sure when you encounter Pharaoh, you do the signs. And so there we find in Abraham, we find in Moses, you find in Joshua, Samuel, David, Elijah. Again and again, these uh, servants of God, again and again, are backed up by supernatural evidences that God is with them. Now often, tragically, in Old Testament history, the people of God are far from God. There are seasons when they're away from God. There's not much evidence of the supernatural. But when they turn back to God and begin to engage with Him again, you'll find, hey, the Spirit comes upon people, whether it's men like Gideon or Samson. The supernatural kicks in again. It's when people are walking with God in the Bible... Again and again, God evidences his approval, his having sent them, by granting signs and wonders. It's just part of how it was throughout Old Testament history. Certainly, even Jesus said this, look, if you don't believe the words, believe the signs. So for Jesus himself, he's looking for that authentication, he's arguing it, here's authentication, look, I'm doing these signs, believe them. It's a very clear scriptural perspective. Paul says in Romans 15:18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the gospel of Christ. I've fulfilled it. I've, I've presented it in its fullness with signs and wonders and word and deed. That's the kind of message that he brought. He completed the gospel. He did the whole thing. Now sometimes people will say, well, there were seasons of activity. Some will say, well, actually, I'm a cessationist. I don't believe that those things continue. That when the Bible era closed, the signs and wonders Close. When we have our scriptures, we don't need the supernatural. But I want to argue that that is not how we should be. I believe God wants us to expect that he will do significant things to affirm and confirm his word. It's simply a biblical pattern. I believe it's something that we should seek God for. Some are saying it's not for today. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the things I do, you should do also. And greater things you shall do, because I'm going to the Father. He is now with the Father. He is the Ascended One. He has received all authority in heaven and earth. He has received the Holy Spirit. He said to his apostles, now go, and the things I did, you do. That was part of his commission. That's part of what he told them to do. And here we find Stephen and Philip not part of the apostolic band, but nevertheless taking that on board. Why not? Taking on board, hey, we have that potential. We have that responsibility. And so that becomes part of Stephen's ministry. Now, I do believe God's speaking to us about this. I believe that it's happening broadly, internationally. I believe it's happening to us as a a, a sphere of churches that work together. In fact, I would say in recent years, this has escalated beyond what I have known in previous decades. In fact, I would just like to know how many here have, in the last five years, either been healed or been witness to a healing of something in your church, someone in your church. In the last five years, if you've been healed, now let's have a look around. It's a bit dark out there, it's a bit dark out there. I I think I can see hundreds and hundreds of hands, all right, all over the place, rows and rows. Just keep waving, it's difficult in here, it's a bit dark and it's... Look at that. Look, it's hundreds and hundreds of hands are waving. Now, I would say this, dear friends. Five years ago, I wouldn't even have asked the question because it was very embarrassing because nothing was happening. And I think five years ago, had I asked the question, I'm not sure we would have seen much happening out there. But, dear friends, I want you to take notice that hundreds of people were waving out there. Hundreds of people have either been healed or close to people being healed, and I do believe with all my heart that God is saying to us in this post-Christian era that part of our breaking through the unbelief, the dismissal of the gospel, is that we coming back, as it were, to biblical Christianity and seeing how it was. It was word and deed. It was word backed up by signs and wonders. I want to encourage you, dear friends, to keep pressing on, keep seeking God keep going for it. Amen? I want to encourage you to believe. I want to encourage you. I thank God for the progress that's been made. I thank God for how, what we've witnessed in these recent years. I was reading a, a magnificent book by Francis Schaeffer called Death in the City. And it's really a superb book uh, about Romans 1. And he, he uses Jeremiah together with Romans 1. And using the illustration that in Jeremiah's day there was a people who used to know God and they're turning away from God and he's showing that in Romans 1 that is the story of the human race. The human race, instead of giving thanks to God, and honoring him, turned away from God. And and Jeremiah, if you like, Romans 1 is just one chapter, but the book of Jeremiah shows the agony of God and the futility of Israel as they turn away, turn away, turn away. It's a really superb insight into Romans 1, particularly, and broadened. But at the end of the book, at the end of the book, having argued so strongly for the reality of God in the, against the face of people turning away from God, he brings the challenge to us who love the Scriptures and says to us, it's no good just arguing for the authority of Scripture. We must display and demonstrate that we're part of a supernatural community. And let me just read to you what he says just a couple of sentences towards the end of the book. We can say... We live in a supernatural world. And yet live as though there were no supernatural in the universe at all. It's not enough merely to say I'm a Christian and then in practice to live as if present contact with the supernatural was something far off and strange. Many Christians I know seem to act as though they come in contact with the supernatural just twice. Once when they're justified and become Christian, and once when they die. The rest of the time, they act as though they were sitting in the materialist chair. Now he uses that phrase because his last chapter, he uses the kind of image and says, imagine the whole world was this room, and it has two chairs in it. And the materialist is sitting in one chair, and the believer is sitting in the other chair. And they're having a conversation. And they're saying, what does this world consist of? And he says, just puts it in a room. What is this wor- room? And he's saying, we have got to more than argue. We've got to prove through faith and acts of faith and confidence in God that we are not living as materialists in the end. We may be able to argue for justification by faith. We may have joy that we're going one day to be with Jesus. But he says, in between, we can live as though we were atheists. A.W. Tozer says, we become pro-tem atheists between our new birth and our death. Between that, we don't expect for the supernatural. And so again, just to quote Schaefer in finishing this, if you say that the universe has a spiritual dimension and yet you don't live in it, you are acting as though you know less than a pagan. You say, I believe in it, but you don't live in it. You're not... Pressing through to God and Lord, demonstrate your presence. Show yourself strong. When you've said these signs shall accompany, Lord, come on, accompany us. Show us. Give us more and more evidence of your being with us. I want to encourage you, dear friends. We'll look at this again briefly when we look at Philip later in the week. But I want to encourage you. We are seeing more happen, more happen. And people are being converted because they're hearing stories. They're understanding. Hey, how did God do that? How come I thought you were going to have this big operation you're not having it anymore? And it's provoking and breaking through. I believe God wants us in that category. Now notice this about Stephen. He was also full of wisdom. They couldn't cope with, it says in verse 10, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now that's an interesting thing. Stephen was full of power and of wisdom. Today, if you want to find out about things, you know, you, go to, you can go to the Wisdom website or you can go to the Power website. If you go to the Wisdom website, you're not expecting to read anything or hear anything about power or supernatural, and uh, if you go to the Power website, you won't find a trace of wisdom. <laughs> and it's like these two things don't overlap, and, and, and the Power thing, you can think, oh, I'd love to know more about this, and the, oh, you think, oh, good gracious, what did he say? Oh my word. And so you find what's going on? We've got like two worlds. So in a hunger to learn more about God's grace and power supernaturally, we can listen, watch, try and take in, learn. And you think, but don't even listen to the teaching. Ah, oh, now listen to that. That's wonderful. Look at that. Oh, the teaching's breathtaking. But we're not expecting anything supernatural to break out. Stephen was not like that. Stephen was powerful and wise. He spoke amazing words. And in that, he was like Jesus. It says about Jesus, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? These things don't have to be in two different websites. They need to be part of our life together. Wisdom and power. Now, it's important that we see this because some of us might say, I want so much to get into the power, let's forget the wisdom. We're not interested in it. Paul wasn't, we can sometimes say. We sometimes hear people say, now just blow your brain away and you'll get into power. God will uh, offend your mind in order to reveal your heart and release you into power. And I don't believe that's a Bible approach. But I do think sometimes people are uh, affected by these sort of verses. First Corinthians 2.1, when I came to you, brothers, Paul says. I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Verse 4 My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in wisdom, but in the power of God. Now that can sound anti wisdom. That can sound like Paul is saying, look, I'm not even interested, I'm not trying to persuade. That's not my role. Look, just have a burst of power, that'll blow them away. That'll sort it all out. Just a display of power is all we need. If only we could get through to the displays of power, then we don't need to teach, we don't need to have wisdom, because the power does it. And it almost seems like Paul is saying that. He's saying, look, I don't depend on persuasive words of wisdom. You think, well, there it is. Paul's saying it. Just signs and wonders, does it? But we, not, we need to compare scriptures because you notice in Acts 19.8, it says this. Paul entered the synagogue and continuing to speak out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God or again acts 28:23 solemnly testifying about the kingdom of god and trying to persuade them concerning jesus from both the law of moses and from the prophets from morning till evening and some were being persuaded by what was spoken i want to encourage you dear friends to see that god wants us to be i believe eager to experience spiritual gifts that vindicate the reality that Jesus is alive. Vindicate the reality he is amongst us, his presence is with us. And that's what happened with Paul, and that's what happened with Stephen. But at the same time, they could not withstand his wisdom. It isn't that he kissed his brains goodbye, he was able, by the grace of God, to speak with such wisdom that it couldn't be withstood. We don't have to divide these things, we need to pull these things together. We need to go after God with all our hearts to combine both of these important views. And to understand, no, Paul often debated, in fact if you read the book of Romans, it's like an argument all the way. It's like a diatribe, He's saying, you ask, you say, I say. And it's, it's, it, in fact C.K. Barrett says this, it's often easier to follow Paul's arguments if you imagine the apostle face to face with a heckler who makes interjections and receives replies? It's like he wrote Romans with someone arguing with him. Say, so, oh, "What about? Oh, well, let me just tell you this." And so he's he's in the context of giving reason and argument, and we mustn't abandon that. We mustn't. I like, oh, don't need that. We just need power. We need apologists. We need people who can help this generation think. We need to provoke fresh thought. So many people have closed their minds to the gospel unreasonably. They've adopted a position they don't realize. It's a position in a sense of faith. They're saying there is no God. They're saying there can't be one faith more uh, real than another. And they're not realizing that's that's a statement of faith, really. It's not like they've investigated them all and I've come to this conclusion. It's just an emotional reaction and we need to come to them and challenge them. We need to reason with them. We need to awaken their conscien- consciousness as well as, yes, be provocative by, s- by seeing signs and wonders. The two went hand, to ha- hand in hand with Stephen, with Jesus. I always think that on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus uh, meets those two downcast guys who've heard, well, he's dead and we had hoped... If I, was, if I was Jesus, you think, what would you say to two disgruntled, hopeless believers who think he's dead? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's time for a resurrection appearance. It's time for, here I am, I'm back from the dead. But Jesus chose not to do that. Jesus gave them a Bible study. So much so, it says at the end, their hearts were burning within them. Not because he displayed, I'm alive but because he taught them from Genesis right through. He reasoned. He, he brought wisdom to bear that made hearts burn. We need to be saying to God, help us, Lord. Help us to be relevant. Help us to be uh, constructing truth that is appealing, reasonable, that to be a believer, well, it's not just a leap into the dark. It's just it's better felt than tell and all that nonsense. We've got to be able to give a reason. We've got to be able to ask God for a wisdom that cannot be just easily discarded. It says of Jesus, No man spoke like this man. It's interesting, it says of Stephen, And the spirit with which he spoke. And so the Holy Spirit is with someone not only in the signs and wonders, but in the actual speaking. That God gives a gift of authority to speech in the very speech itself, there's, a, there's an awesome authority in God. So that when they went to take Jesus and the soldiers went to get him, sent by the Pharisees, go and get Jesus. They went to get Jesus. They listened to him. They go back again. And, and they come back. They say, well, where is he? So, oh, no man ever spoke like this man. He speaks with authority, not like the scribes. And that was just hearing him speak. They were absolutely overwhelmed. The Holy Spirit was on Stephen so that he spoke with authority. A God-given gift for powerful speech. On the day of Pentecost, the people were pierced to the heart as Stephen spoke. Even John the Baptist, it says of him, there was the, he did no miracle, unusual, by, in the margin, unusual. He did no miracle but his speech was with power. And people were saved in multitudes. God can give power to speech. God can give power and wisdom. We need to ask God to help us. Give ourselves. Dig into the way people are thinking today. Research how people are and help them get answers to their questions. I've been so thrilled looking at some of the replies to Dawkins, Andrew Wilson's book, a man called, I think, Dave Robertson's book, Letters to Dawkins. I mean, just fighting back. And I heard the most wonderful testimony of someone saved recently, just seeing through the letters that this guy's written back and challenging Dawkins and saying, hey, what, this is nonsense what you're saying. How can you just throw aside the Christian message? We need to argue. We need to present wisdom as well as signs and wonders. And so, yeah, Stephen's qualifications. Secondly, Stephen's reputation. Stephen had a reputation because... Well, it was a false one, actually, because it says in verses 11 and 13, false witnesses were secretly induced to speak against him. He had a reputation. We're often at the mercy of others who give their reports on us. That's the experience of the believer. People often speak against us. They don't so much invent things often, but... Distort. And so you'll find that the accusations against Stephen are distortions of probably teaching that he brought, but seriously distorted, and obviously where they are themselves affected by the implications of what he says. You'll find that Paul also says people speak against him. They accuse him of antinomianism. He says in Romans 3.8, We are slanderously reported as saying, let us do evil that good may come. We're slanderously reported. What does Paul actually say? Well, Paul says things like, well, to him that believes, his faith is counted as righteousness. And God will justify the ungodly. And and so, Paul has this wonderful statement of grace. It's free grace. And he gets challenged, slanderously reported that, hey, he doesn't even care about righteousness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, if you're not misunderstood and slanderously reported from the standpoint of antinomianism, it's because you don't believe the gospel truly and you don't preach it truly. He was a bit of a radical in a Geneva gown, wasn't he? If you're not accused of antinomianism, you don't believe the gospel. You don't preach it. If you don't preach grace in such a way that causes offense, you don't even actually understand. So what happens is sometimes we preach a message that is radical, has radical application, and it gets turned on us. And that's what happened to Stephen. It wasn't like they invented something, but they distorted what he was saying and attacked him. And actually it was what Stephen said that got him into trouble. It wasn't his healings. See, Peter and John saw the guy healed at the gate of the temple and no one accused them. No one went after them. In fact, it says they were held in honor. They glorified God because of the great healing that took place. And although the Sanhedrin were upset, they dare not touch them because they were so popular with the people. The signs and the wonders brought popularity, but that's not the whole deal. Stephen had to say some things and it be what we say that will often bring the offense. People are happy to see signs and wonders, happy to see healing, but unless we're saying some things that cut into the society, cut into the problem, we're not really getting the job done. And so we find here Stephen is in trouble, not because of what he did in Signs and Wonders, but because of the words that he spoke. He was speaking, they said, against this holy place. There's a sense in which it looks like Stephen was clearer, maybe, about the temple than even the apostles seemed to be at one time. The apostles were still going up to the temple for the third hour of prayer. They were still revolving around the temple. They were still centering things in the temple. And somehow Stephen seems to have seen further ahead. Stephen seems to be almost a stepping stone from Jesus, who says, destroy this temple and other kind of dramatic things through to Paul who sees, now we are the temple of God. We're living stones. We're the dwelling place of God in the spirit. But Stephen seems to have seen some more. Stephen is not over impressed by the temple. He's not over impressed by the place it has had in the past. Just like Jesus when he went to Samaria And the woman at the well had this conversation with him and says, should we worship here or in Jerusalem? And of course, in the Old Testament, the answer would have been very, very clear. Jerusalem, you don't worship anywhere else. You'll be in big trouble if you do. But Jesus said, it doesn't really matter. God's looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. The disciples come up as uh, non-city guys. They come from the north, from an agricultural area, Small town place, they come up to Jerusalem, they say, wow, look at this temple. They're overwhelmed. And Jesus says, no, listen, not one stone will stand upon another. It's all coming down. It's not relevant anymore. It's obsolete when that curtain gets torn. Jesus has already demonstrated that the temple is obsolete. When Jesus is out on the streets... In fact, in a house at one point, and they open the, the top of the house and let a, a paralytic come through on his bed. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And the, and the priests are there and say, hey, hey, wait a minute. You can't do that. Only God can forgive sin. And what they really meant was, only the temple provides the way for forgiveness. You come to us, you buy a sheep or a lamb from us, and of course, you use our money. We won't use your money. Change it to temple money. And then you buy a lamb from us and we'll look after your forgiveness. We've got, we've got this all done. It's with us. And when Jesus comes, he's breaking out. Jesus is saying, Your sins are forgiven. He's completely sidetracked the temple. He, the temple's out in the street, the temple is there. God is accessible without having coming through the Pharisee system, this locked-up God that's behind temple walls and behind their power, behind their money-changing trickery, that's taking their money, changing it to temple money, the thing that infuriated Jesus. And they say, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sin. In other words, only we, with our system, the temple. He says, well, so that you may know, the Son of Man has power to forgive sin. Get up. What's harder to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise and walk? Rise and walk. And you get this amazing thing. This guy is immediately healed. The kingdom's breaking out. Jesus is breaking outside of the temple. The temple, this building, is no longer the significant center. This building is no longer what it used to be. Now Jesus has come. Jesus says, "Destroy this temple. I am the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is leading them into the new covenant people, a people that don't depend on a special building, a special location, a special services, on a new relationship with God himself through the Lamb that was slain. And So here we find, yeah, Stephen is in trouble. Stephen has said things that are being interpreted as hostile against this holy place, against our uniqueness. And in doing that, as false witnesses, they managed to stir up the people. Already the Sanhedrin are unhappy with Peter and James and John, but the people hold them in high honor. And so now they're going to stir the people against Stephen. The way they do it is to tell lies, overstate. And So Stephen goes through this experience, and Stephen was controversial. He was vulnerable. He didn't play safe. I believe God will give to us more and more opportunity to be bold and clear with the gospel the things that we want to say positively will always have a negative kickback and you'll find people are accused of the negatives that you didn't even want to highlight you wanted to say the positive but the negative is what will dig into you and we find ourselves pulled into situations sometimes that will be very costly as we're going to see for Stephen here So first of all, we've seen his qualifications, then we've seen his reputation, this godly, beautiful man, full of grace, full of wisdom. He's on a situation where it's distorted and ugly and hostile. The third thing I want to talk about is Stephen's exhortation. Stephen's exhortation starts so gracious and respectful. He begins to speak to the people, men... And brothers, brothers and fathers, actually, probably referring to, yeah, his blood brothers and the Sanhedrin, the spiritual fathers. He speaks really respectfully. He's not speaking as some kind of radical who's walked away. He's saying, brothers, I'm I'm part of you. Fathers, I've respected you. He's making an appeal. It's It's a very gracious appeal at the beginning. He says, men and brothers, hear me. Before he begins his long speech, he's making an appeal. Now, look, listen. Step outside of your prejudices. Prejudice is an ugly thing. Prejudice is judging before you've heard. Pre-judging. Knowing what I believe before I've heard. Don't bother me with facts. I already know. And Stephen is saying, step outside of your prejudices. Listen to what I have to say to you. Hear me. It's not an appeal, actually, for justice for himself. It's a call to them to wake up to what they're doing. Return to the roots of their faith. A true radical is never afraid of history. I believe a true radical wants to get back to the root. He wants to say, listen, Abraham, he met with God away from this temple. God met with Moses away from this place, this place that you have made so special, so unique this holy land he says No, listen, when God met with Moses out in the desert, he said take your sandals off, this is holy ground it's holy because God is there people talk today about the holy land it's not holy land Mount Sinai was the holy mountain, you weren't even allowed to touch it it was holy while God was there. It's just an ordinary mountain now. It's where God is. And Stephen is touching on some very, very kind of treasured ideas. No, this is holy land. This is very important. This is very special. No, 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 it's not actually. And in saying the positive, there's the negative kickback. But he's beginning to say to them, listen, God spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He spoke to Joseph when he was in Egypt. He spoke to Moses when he was in Sinai. He's saying, "Listen, God is a God of the living. God is God uh, not locked into a particular location. He's wanting to break them out of their preconceived concepts. He begins to appeal to them. He's beginning to try and make them think properly. Listen, he's not going to go away. He's not going to say, well, I'll plague on you all. I'll walk away. There were people in Stephen's day, the Essenes, the Qumran sects, who realised that Israel was getting very distorted and just withdrew. Stephen is refusing to withdraw. He's right there in the centre saying, come on guys, come back to what you ought to be. Let the church be what she should be. Let's come back to biblical truth. Let's let's not just walk away. Let's say, "No, no, brothers, fathers, we're part of you. Come on back to what the Bible says. Come back to the authentic. Come back to your true roots. Come back to Abraham. That's what he's saying to them. And then he begins to say to them, you had a pattern of doing this. And so he illustrates from Joseph, first of all. God raised up Joseph. God gave him a vision, a dream. But it says in... Verse 10 of chapter 7, the brothers were jealous of Joseph. It's beginning to suggest a pattern that these people who jealously have crucified Jesus. Hey, you've got a history. Once upon a time, this happened before. Joseph was raised up. You jealously dealt with him as a nation. Moses, he says in verse 35, you disown, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? the one that God had sent to be ruler and deliverer. Our fathers repudiated him. So he says, as a nation, you turned your back on Joseph, you turned your back on Moses, you've had this in your style. And now, he says, verse 51, you are doing just as your fathers did. And Stephen himself turns out to be not the guy who's out, but he's the authentic, he's a a true child of the prophets as they begin to turn against him. And so Stephen himself is the authentic one. As they're accusing him of being out of step, against God, blaspheming. No, 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 he is being true to God. That's what he's bringing home to them, challenging them. Then fourthly, Stephen's revelation. He saw the heavens open. The Bible speaks of that two or three times. You see, Ezekiel, he says, I saw the heavens open. I saw visions of God. John, on the Isle of Patmos, saw the heavens open. Saw a throne in the heavens. Amazing privilege given to a handful of Bible characters. But here we get this beautiful Trinitarian verse, in verse 55. He says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is happening as the crowd is getting uglier and more and more furious. And Stephen standing before them, it says, with a face like an angel, this guy arguing, presenting the reality of their history, given this longest uh, dealing of a speech in the book of Acts, as Luke obviously feels it's a magnificent presentation of the truth and the reality, he suddenly sees into glory. He sees the heavens opened. And not only that, he starts talking in terms of the Son of Man. Now, Stephen's the only other New Testament, the only New Testament character apart from Jesus who uses the phrase Son of Man in describing Jesus. Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. Often talks about the Son of Man. Kind of enigmatic, really. It's almost like I, he says, Son of Man. Instead, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Son of Man this, the Son of Man that. It's fairly, I'm sure, enigmatic when Jesus kept using this but the one place in the Old Testament where this Son of Man figure was famously referred to was in Daniel and chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7 you see Daniel sees the heavens open and he says, I saw the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom. That, that's a famous Old Testament passage speaking about this majestic one who would come, a man in the heavens, a Son of Man, a man Seen in heaven, approaching God in all his glory and majesty and might and power. It's a phenomenal passage in Daniel 7. Daniel's seen this in advance. There'll come a day when a man, a son of man, will approach the throne of heaven and receive a kingdom. And Stephen is in this situation, and they're arguing for God in this building, and he's seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. He's seeing the authentic, he's seeing the realisation, he's seeing what Psalm 24 speaks about. Lift up your gates, uh, lift up your heads all your gates, let the King of glory come in. He's coming right up to the Ancient of Days to receive dominion and kingdom and power. And Stephen sees this, and he begins to quote it. I saw in the night visions, it says in Daniel 7, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Stephen is seeing the fulfillment of a promise that goes back centuries. Jesus receiving all authority all power. As he said in Matthew 28, all authority is given to me. As Paul later argues in Ephesians, he's been not only raised from the dead, but taken to a position above every name and given authority. He's presented. And Stephen is seeing this in the Spirit. He's getting this revelation. He's in the reality of it. He said, well, that means cost. He'll, he'll live then. He'll be saved. He's seeing the true king. No, no, he's seeing this just before He's going to be stoned to death. He's in the reality of knowing who the king is, but that does not mean that his life's going to be preserved. That does not mean everything's going to work out all right. But the Bible has this clear revelation. Hey, he is seeing the true, authentic situation. Brings me to my final point, Stephen's glorification. They cried out with a loud voice, "Stone him kill him. At the beginning Stephen said open your ears. It says at the end they, they're closing their ears. Men and brothers hear me closing their ears, refusing to hear him. They rush upon him and start stoning him. And you get this extraordinary phrase, he fell asleep. Amazing triumph as he lays down his life. They overcame him, It says is in the book of Revelation, they overcame the accuser through the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. They, they loved not their lives. These early believers triumphed through laying down their lives. Dear friends, as we, as we press on in global mission, we've got to look at this, we've got to be aware of this, we've got to see the reality that more and more, There's harshness, there's conflict. More and more to realize that we're on the edge sometimes of huge danger. And being able to walk into this with our hearts pure and be aware of it. Realizing that last year in Turkey people were martyred for their faith and they were doing outreach evangelism that our guys have been doing within days of them doing it. We hear this terrible thing, they were killed. Our friends in Pakistan are now going to meetings with police protection. Robin and Kerala, just a few weeks ago, their meeting broken into, things smashed up. We're on the edges of things, in places like Zim and Kenya, real danger. Real danger if we face the huge challenges of the life in which we're being called to live. God has called us to live at a time of huge upheaval, huge challenges. And here we find in Stephen not just a man of power and signs and wisdom, but a man who's seen issues so clearly that he's not counting his life dear. Saul, who's looking on, is going to express it later, say, I don't count my life dear to me that I might fulfill the ministry. Sometimes we might say, oh, I must save my life to fulfill my ministry. And Paul says, no, I don't count my life dear that I might fulfill my ministry. For Stephen, the famous first Christian martyr, he laid down his life. His life was snatched from him. He said, well, where was God? Why didn't God save him? Well, the purposes of God are wrapped up in this man's obedience. The purposes of God, we find Saul is Im- immediately impacted. Saul is going to be the greatest... Apostle probably in the scriptures, world history. He's listening, he's watching. And later on, God's just going to say to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm sure he's looking at that face of Stephen. He's thinking of that angel kind of face. He's hearing him say, don't lay this sin to their charge. He's hearing him say, Jesus received my spirit. All that must be going on and on. Because something's happening that's going to ignite Saul. Also, the church has got to be scattered in God's purpose, which we'll look at when we look at Philip. There's a purpose of God involved. I was just reading recently the story of uh, Stephen Saint. Stephen Saint in a book, a chapter written, Sovereignty, Suffering, and World Missions. He says this subheading in his article. He says, God planned my dad's death. It's very dramatic statement. God planned my dad's death. Who who is Stephen Saint? Well, he's the son of a man called Nate Saint who was the pilot of the five young Americans that laid down their life in Ecuador. And the story was well known back in the 50s, these five guys, brilliant young men trying to invade to a tribe, the Alca tribe and, and just flying in, beginning to make contact, lowering down gifts, going in gradually, and then when they land and they find a, slot, a spot to land, immediately they're speared to death and the shockwaves go around the world. But these five young Americans are destroyed. And Stephen Saint, his native saint's son, says again and again, he's had people say to him, if only they'd done it a different way, if only they'd done it this way or that way. And he said, actually, I get rather offended by it. Because he said, I do truly, truly believe that God planned it. And he actually says this in his article, thousands of missionaries name it as the reason their hearts were moved to respond to God's call. Thousands of missionaries, thousands of people around the world, when they heard of these five young guys, and Jim Elliott and his story went around the world. I know for myself, as a backslidden Christian, I'd just come back to God. I'd just come out of a, a season of really not worrying what it's all about. Very convicted, came back to God, raw recruit really, saying, how do you live this Christian life? And someone gave me the book, Jungle Pilot, Nate Saint's Story. And I read that book and this young man, he's so attractive and bright and interesting and fascinating and lays down his life. It just so got to me, so powerfully affected me and turned me round. It was a very big instrument in turning my life round, this guy's testimony. Then someone passed me the Jim Elliot book and, and, and you said, wow, these young men, what experience got a hold of me, turned me. And here he's saying, Thousands of missionaries on the back of it. God is sovereign when it's hard for us to understand. God is sovereign when events take place, when you think, well, if he's the Lord, if all authority and dominion is given to him, if he's reigning, why don't he stop this? And Stephen saying, no, I, I believe God's got a big plan and he knows exactly what he's doing. He's ruling and reigning and working out his plan. And we find that, yes, Whereas the council of Gamaliel had quietened things down and persecution looked as though maybe, well, we'll just wait and see how this goes. No, Stephen stirred it up again. There was a great turmoil, and it's as they've scattered after Stephen's death. And God's purpose begins to work as the gospel gets scattered everywhere. God working out his plan. So here we see Stephen here tonight, I want to just commend him to you, as I believe God would have us think about him. Once again, just to remind you, he was a man full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit, looking for God to vindicate his own name through signs and wonders and supernatural things. Dear friends, let's keep pressing in to believe God for evidences of his presence. That Jesus in Luke as we were hearing earlier, Acts following on, it starts at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, the former treatise I wrote to you of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Implication, now I'm going to write to you about what he continued to do and teach. Jesus wants us to be doing things in his name as well as teaching. Doing and teaching. Here's the model we see in Stephen, full of power, yes, but also full of wisdom, God help us to pull together what people seem so willing to divide, separate, say, no, by the grace of God, I want us to be wise, I want us to be give a good reason, be good workmen. Not ashamed, correctly handling the word of truth. Not blowing away doctrine in order to get power, but saying, no, no, we want to see these things together, Amen. So this is a value. It's a huge value for us. We might be able to, yes, win brothers who say, no, these things don't happen anymore. That all finished." No, no, I believe they're for today, we can argue it biblically, and we want not only to convince and encourage our brothers, but also to impact a world that says, no, it's all nonsense. And they can see, no, no, God's at work. God's doing things. Here are amazing things taking place. Phenomenal things that have happened, even in these last... Few months. Maggie Parker got out of her wheelchair in the church in South Wales, in Cardiff, a few weeks back, after 25 years, and we prayed, and she got out of the wheelchair. She's written to me more recently saying, I've written to the people who give disablement pensions. I've written saying, I believe in Jesus who died to forgive my sins. He's alive, He's healed me, I don't need the pension anymore. It's amazing. And you know, in your churches all over, I hear stories coming in from all over, God is doing this more and more. Amazing stories, provocative, the true God, the living God, the God who answers by fire, the authentic God. But we need also wisdom to back that up. We need also to teach, to bring application, to bring content that is clear and true. We need to be able to do that. We need to be able to handle sometimes when we ourselves are having people speak against us. Stephen had people speak against him. He handled it with such grace, such wisdom. God was with him in it. You will find your reputation gets distorted. You've got to handle it. You've got to be able to say, Lord, help me go through this. Help me walk through this with purity. We've had seasons of that, seasons that come and go. When we first got started, we had so many people speaking against us. It's almost like a season that seemed to fade. Who knows when it comes again? but to be able to walk through that with godliness. And as we touch the nations more and more, there'll be these kind of things spoken against, there'll be times of tremendous revelation, there'll be times even when some of us will pay the ultimate price. But in our hearts, we need to have the attitude of Paul saying, look, I don't count my life dear to myself. Lord, serving your cause is priority number one. May God help us to see this man, Stephen. He's the one God wants us to look at tonight, a beautiful illustration of the life that God wants from us. Let's stand to pray. I'd like the band to come up. We just sing before we finish here. Let's just draw near to God. Let's realize, as we're praying here, Stephen was a guy asked to help. He's not one of the superlative leaders. And yet, he's a man who understands what God's after. And as a man continually full of the Holy Spirit. Father, I want to pray right now for my brothers and sisters. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus for ever-increasing openness to your Spirit. Ever-increasing ability to tune in to your phenomenal resources. That the power of God might rest upon us. That, Lord Jesus, we might have the courage to do exploits in your name, that we may not back off. We might trust you. We might trust you to push the boundaries further and further, to see the evidences of your being alive, Lord Jesus, in and through our life and ministry. Not being content only to speak words, but to expect you, God. God confirming the word with the signs that follow. God himself bearing witness with many signs and wonders. Lord, we're so longing for you to bear witness. We pray help us to bear witness and then come yourself, we pray. Bear your witness. Come stand with us. Come do what we cannot do. Come vindicate your own name. Lord Jesus, we do pray too for clarity. We pray we may see the big picture like Stephen did. We may not be just locked in to the small and local, but like Stephen, starting with Abraham, seeing the big, big picture of your great plan, starting with that one man, but reaching to the ends of the earth. And Lord Jesus, knowing that you're the enthroned one, we want to live in the light of it, Lord. Father, I ask you right now in Jesus' name, but by our considering these things our hearts and minds might be opened our expectation might be lifted that we might press into being more and more like this great servant of yours we pray Lord Jesus that ultimately we may hold our lives at your disposal and that Lord Jesus your sovereign will might be uppermost for us That whatever it costs, Lord, as we look beyond, as we look to the enthroned one, as we look to the one who's gone through the heavens with all authority, Lord, we might not count our lives so precious that we risk nothing for you. Help us in it, God. We just bring to you, Lord, these thousands of lives we represent here tonight. We say, oh, that you would make us like this great servant of yours. You do this transforming work in our lives. Lord, let your spirit continue with us in this we pray. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.